Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And you know, recently, guys, I did episodes about how matches work and how lighters work and talked about how chemists and physicists and inventors were able to make it easier than ever to light a fire. So I thought it's really only fitting if I do an episode about smoke detectors and smoke alarms and and other types of fire alarms to talk about their history and how they work. Now, clearly, smoke detectors are incredibly important because we all know fires can be life-threatening. They can spread quickly. They can cut off potential escape routes for the people who are caught in the way. So early warning systems that can alert us to danger before it becomes a mortal danger are fantastic inventions. And there are a couple of inventions I want to talk about before we actually get to smoke detectors. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to any of you who have listened to Tech Stuff episodes before. I always like to set the ground. Well, the first one that I want to talk about is the portable electric fire alarm, as in a fire alarm that works on electricity, not a fire alarm that detects electric fires. Francis Robbins Upton, who was a physicist who was a partner and general manager of the Edison Lamp Works, you know, as in Thomas Edison, developed this particular invention back in 1890. Now, according to the patent, the design would sound an alarm after detecting that the temperature had risen above some predetermined limit. So if it got too hot, this thing would go off. And the way this would work was really clever. You can actually learn exactly how it was supposed to work based on the patent that Upton got on this particular invention. So the way it works is that the, uh, the there are a pair of electrical contacts. And if they are in in contact with each other, if they touch each other, it completes a circuit. But normally, there's a gap between them, and electricity can't pass between the two. They, it can't cross that gap. So it's normally in the off position. However, one of those two electrical contacts is mounted on a fixed arm, and the other is on an arm that's attached to a coil of bimetallic material. Now, I mentioned bimetallic strips in the episode about lighters, and it's something you find in a lot of different technologies that depend upon changes in temperature as uh, a variable, like thermostats have bimetallic strips in them. And essentially what it is is a strip of metal that consists of two different metals. And think of it as like a, a metal sandwich, a top side and a bottom side. And one metal is the top side, the other metal is the bottom side, and each metal has slightly different properties. And one of those properties is how quickly they expand when they're heated up. You know, we know that metal expands as it gets warmer. Well, using a bimetallic strip, you have one side that will expand faster than the other side. And when that happens, it causes the strip to curl. So it deforms as it gets warmer. One side is is expanding faster than the other, and you get this curled metal as a result. So with Upton's proposed invention in the patent, this coil of bimetallic material would act as sort of an actuator. As it would get warm, it would expand, and this in turn would create a pushing force on the arm with the electrical contact on it 
that then can move toward the other electrical contact that's in a fixed position. And so once the coil had expanded enough, the two contacts would touch one another and it would complete a circuit. At that point, electrical current could actually flow from a battery that was connected to this device all the way through to activate an alarm bell. So once the temperature got hot enough, the two contacts touch, you get a circuit, the alarm bell goes off. If it cools down, the contacts will slowly separate, and eventually they'll separate enough where that electrical circuit can't be complete anymore, the alarm bell would go off. And Upton's invention was, without a doubt, a very clever one. And it could help save property by sounding an alarm before a fire had raged completely out of control. But there are many dangers with fires, and heat is just one of them. Another very serious danger is smoke, which not only obscures your vision, but it also can suffocate you as well. So while the alarm as designed would work, it wouldn't necessarily be enough to save lives, or it might not save enough lives because it would only go into action after the temperature had already increased enough to make this bimetallic strip expand to a sufficient degree. And by that time, it might already be too late for the people in that building. Now, as far as I know, Edison's company didn't actually produce any of these fire alarms, but they did patent it. Over in Great Britain, there was a fellow named George Andrew Darby who patented his own fire alarm, also triggered by an increase in temperature. But Darby's invention did not depend upon bimetallic strips. It depended on butter or some other material that melts at higher temperatures. Say what? All right, so imagine you've got a seesaw-like contraption, a lever in other words, and the heavy end of the lever uh, is up in the air, actually, because you have a weight on the opposite end of that lever. So it's like a kid sitting on a seesaw that doesn't have another kid at the end of it. The kid at the end of the seesaw weighs it down, and the, the free end of the seesaw is up in the air. Well, in this case, the fire alarm's seesaw, the arm that's up in the air, has an electrical contact point on it. And if the arm of the seesaw were to come down, that contact would complete a circuit, and thus uh, uh, electricity would be able to run from a battery through an alarm, very much like Upton's invention. So weighing down the other end of the arm, the thing that's actually keeping the electrical contact up in the air, is a block of butter or fat or wax or some other material that can melt at higher temperatures. So as the temperature rises, the block begins to melt away. And eventually it melts enough so that the weight isn't sufficient to keep the other end of the seesaw up in the air and it'll sink down. And the contact will complete the circuit and the alarm will go off. I was amused to find a butter-based fire alarm. I wasn't surprised that it came out of England, but I was amused to find it. I can think of a few potential problems with such an arrangement. For example, it might start attracting pests that could eat the weight. So in those cases, you wouldn't actually have a fire alarm, but you might have a rat alarm. Or it would just turn rancid and smell awful. It's still a pretty clever approach, but not one that I think you would actually want to put in your buildings. But these solutions weren't practical for homes or anything like that. As I mentioned, they wouldn't really alert you to the presence of smoke, which on its own would be enough to be deadly. So this was really looked at as more of a solution for things like 
factories, facilities where you've got a lot of industrial operations going on, where the risk of fire is high and the risk of property loss is also high. Smoke detectors also trace their history back to chemists, physicists, and inventors. And in fact, you could say that smoke detectors were made possible not just through exploratory science, but also happy accidents. And we'll begin with a super smart Swiss physicist in the early 20th century. And try saying that three times fast. Super smart Swiss physicist. Uh, His name was Heinrich Greinecker. And Greinecker, or Greinacre if you prefer, studied a lot of different stuff, including radioactivity. Wilhelm Röntgen had discovered the existence of X-rays in 1895. And Greinecker devoted a good deal of his work toward getting a better understanding of x-rays and other forms of radiation. And to do that, he had to overcome some practical obstacles. For example, he needed a device to help measure the intensity of x-rays, and such a device didn't really exist yet, so he got to work inventing one. X-rays are a type of ionizing radiation. That means that when they encounter molecules or atoms, They can ionize them. And an ion is a molecule or an atom that has a net electrical charge. So it's either a positive uh, particle or a negative particle. And a positive ion is one that has more protons than electrons. So you have a net positive charge. A negative ion would be the opposite. It has more electrons than protons and has a net negative charge. Now, one thing Greinecker did was to create... Uh, ions by building a grid of wires through which he could stream high-voltage current. And you would pass air molecules, essentially, through this grid, and the current would strip electrons off of those particles, creating positive ions. So the grid was in this chamber through which gas could move, and as I said, the current would ionize the gas. But the other really neat thing he did was he invented a voltage multiplier circuit because he needed to generate this really high voltage, uh, around 220 volts, actually. And that could take incoming alternating current electricity. That's the uh, type of electricity that power plants typically send out because it's easier to send out alternating current over long distances than direct current. Well, uh, Greinecker's invention would bring in alternating current and then convert it to direct current and run the direct current through a circuit with stuff like capacitors and diodes. And the whole process is a bit complicated to explain, particularly without the use of visual aids. And also it goes beyond today's topic. But in the future, I will have to talk about voltage multiplying circuits more specifically because they are important in all sorts of technologies, including super cool bleeding edge science stuff like particle accelerators. But for the purposes of this episode, the important thing to remember is that it made it possible for Greinecker to create an ionization chamber. Now, Greinecker's concern was radioactivity. And so we're going to leave off his part of the story at this point because that was his big contribution, was creating a, a feasible way to make an ionization chamber. We need to focus more on the folks who actually made the first smoke detectors. Uh, Maybe I'll do a full episode about Greinecker and other early physicists in the future, since their work would lead to a deeper understanding of atomic physics and, by extension, quantum physics. But for now, we're going to get back to smoke alarms. So that brings us to our next Swiss smarty pants person, Walter Jaeger. Now, back in 1930, Jaeger wasn't 
setting out to build a smoke detector. That wasn't his goal. Instead, he had developed a hypothesis. He thought that perhaps, using a device with an ionization chamber, like the one Greinacher had made, he could build a poison gas detector. So how did he think he could do this? Well, this gets into how smoke detectors actually work, so we're going to dive into it. All right. So as I said before, you've got your ionized particles. That's a basic component of a large number of smoke detectors. There's actually a different type of smoke detector that doesn't use an ionization chamber at all, but I'll cover that later in this episode. So these ionized particles are positively charged. They've had electrons stripped off of them, so they have more protons than electrons. They're positively charged. A battery connected to two metal plates creates a positively charged surface on one side and a negatively charged surface on the other side. So the electrons that are stripped away from the the molecules will then move to the positively charged plate. And the positive ions are going to move to the negatively charged plate because opposite charges attract. This movement of electrons is electricity. That's what electricity is. So it's not a lot of electrical current, but it's consistent. Jaeger hypothesized that poison gas would interfere with that current of electricity, and that if you detected a drop in current, that would set off the detector, and Jaeger would say, oh, there's poison gas here. So he started testing it, except it didn't work. The poison gas did not set off the detector. And as the story goes, Jaeger was getting frustrated and stressed out, and he decided to smoke a cigarette and think about the problem. And so he lights up the cigarette, he starts puffing away, and the next thing he knows, his detector is going off. Now, the poison gas had not interacted with the ions, but the smoke did. So what's going on? Well, there are particles in smoke that can bond to ions, neutralizing them. So negatively charged particles that can bond with the positive ones. And when that happens, you get a drop in current between those two electric plates I was talking about. And that's what sets off the detector. Another scientist named Ernst Mayle improved upon this design by using a cold cathode tube. I've talked about cathode tubes in the past. Here's a quick rundown. It's essentially a device that emits electrons. Looks a lot like a light bulb. You've got uh, a, a filament that's encased inside a vacuum tube. And the idea is that you pass an electric current through the cathode tube's filament. The cathode tube's filament heats up due to electrical resistance. And as it heats up, it starts to emit a stream of electrons due to thermionic emission. Uh, essentially, that electrical resistance means that the flow gets impeded. You convert some of that energy over into heat. The heat itself strips electrons away from the tungsten filament inside, and then you get your stream. Cold cathode tubes work on a different principle, though they aren't necessarily actually cold. So you've got a cathode. That's the uh, electrode that would emit electrons. And on the opposite end of the tube, you have an anode. That's the side that accepts electrons. So it's the positively charged part of this particular device. And these are both sealed in a tube. And that tube also has a gas inside of it. And applying a sufficient voltage between the cathode and the anode, a difference in electrical charge, if it's sufficient enough, it'll cause a discharge between the two and the gas will act as a carrier for that electrical current. So a neon light is an implementation of the cold cathode tube technology. 
Mei Li's objective was to boost the signal from the detection circuit so that the signal could be strong enough to trigger an alarm. So not just that it would detect a drop in current or a a change in the electrical current across these two plates, but that it would also have a strong enough signal so it could power a loudspeaker or activate um, a physical bell. And uh, a separate circuit in the smoke detector activates upon this change in electrical current, sending a signal to the cold cathode tube, which acts like an amplifier. It takes that incoming signal, amplifies it enough for it to do some useful work, like powering a loudspeaker and thus alerting you that there is, in fact, smoke in the area. Now, Jaeger, being an enterprising sort, partnered with Meili to launch a business offering smoke detectors in the late 1940s. However, these detectors weren't terribly practical because they required that high voltage to operate, to, to create that ionization chamber. And homes were not wired for that kind of high voltage. So... That meant that you couldn't really get one for your house. They were mostly used, again, in big industrial settings where you could wire things up for that kind of power. The solution to this problem was already set in motion, though at the time, it was top secret. I'll get to that after this quick break. Now, while the high-voltage smoke detectors weren't seen as practical from an implementation standpoint for your average homeowner, it was undeniable that they were useful. And this was particularly highlighted in the United States by a tragedy that took place on December 1st, 1958 at the Roman Catholic School in Chicago called Our Lady of the Angels School. Now, the origins of the fire have never been verified. No one knows exactly what started it, but it appeared to begin in the stairwell for the school. And the school had limited fire prevention measures in place. The school itself was an older building in Chicago and had been grandfathered into Chicago's safety standards because it had previously met earlier regulations. So when the city updated its fire safety regulations, one of the policies there was that older buildings that had passed the previous ones were considered safe. Students and staff were unaware of the danger of the fire until it became a critical threat, and more than 90 children died in that tragedy. It was a truly horrifying event, and it illustrated the need to develop better fire detection and prevention methods. Research in Canada and the United States began looking into various catastrophic fires that had happened over the years. And according to Dr. Jim Milkey of the University of Maryland, these studies found evidence suggesting that had smoke detectors been available at the time, there would have been 40% fewer deaths in those catastrophic fires. Uh, There were more than 300 of them that they were looking at. And rise of heat detectors, which I'll talk about in a second, would have decreased the number of fatalities less than 10%. And these were hypotheses, mind you. You, There was no way of knowing that that, in fact, would actually have been the way it played out. We only know what actually happened, not what might have happened. But the scholars were pointing out how the cause of death wasn't always due to direct exposure to fire itself, which rise of heat detectors would help you avoid, but exposure to smoke and smoke detectors might activate well in advance of a rise of heat detector giving people precious time to evacuate a building. 
So that rise of heat detector, that's like the kind I was talking about at the top of this episode. It's the type that can uh, monitor increases in temperature, and at a certain temperature, they'll activate. They'll sound an alarm. But by then, it might be too late. So the high-voltage requirement for smoke detectors that ionized air that had an ionization chamber was still a problem at this point. It made them impractical and expensive, particularly for homeowners. It was, again, more common for really big buildings like manufacturing plants and factories and that kind of thing. And the rise of heat detectors, like the ones I first described in this episode, would also be used in those facilities. So the solution to this problem of requiring high voltage would have its roots in a top-secret program that had a very different aim. See, back in 1944, there was a guy named Glenn Seaborg who had been asked to join the highly classified Manhattan Project. Now, this was, of course... The United States' effort to find a way to weaponize atomic energy, to split the atom to release an enormous and destructive force that could be used as a weapon. Seaborg led a team that researched radioactive materials as they tried to determine which of them would be the most useful in a weapon like an atomic bomb. They discovered and created numerous radioactive elements in the process, uh, elements that are above 92 on the elemental table, were all synthetic. They were all created in labs, and they're very unstable atoms. Now, among the ones that they worked on was one called americerium. So americerium is a synthetic uh, element that uh, was produced in the lab in a cyclotron experiment in Berkeley, California. The specific variant that we're interested in uh, for this podcast is an isotope of americerium. It's americerium-241. And, you know, I mentioned what ions are, but what is an isotope? In case it's been a while since you've had basic science, because I always have to look these up. I mean, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I, I get my stuff mixed up, so I got to look it up. Well, you know, an ion is an atom or molecule that has a net electric charge, right? That means it either ha has too many or too few electro uh, electrons for it to balance out with the protons. That's an ion. Isotopes are different. You have the, the right number of protons and electrons, but you have different numbers of neutrons between two different, two or more different variants of the same element. So americerium-241 and americerium-242 are nearly identical. They have the same number of protons and the same number of electrons. But americerium-242 has one neutron more than americerium-241. It changes the atomic mass of that particular atom, but otherwise has the same protons and electrons as the other isotopes of that element. So americerium-241 is radioactive, which means it decays and gives off radiation. Uh, it's ionic radiation. So that means that the energy that's given off, the, the radiation that's given off is, is energetic enough to strip electrons off of atoms or molecules and ionizing them. A small amount of americerium-241 will ionize atoms like oxygen and nitrogen just through the natural process of radioactive decay. So what do I mean by a small amount? I'm talking about one five-thousandth of a gram, so a super tiny amount of radioactive material. Now, smoke detector manufacturers did not immediately jump on americerium as a replacement for a high-voltage circuit. That would take some time and a lot of study before determining that americerium was pretty safe to use under specific parameters. The type of radiation it gives off is primarily alpha radiation. 
there's alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. I'll talk more about that in a subsequent episode. But alpha radiation is the emission of alpha particles. And an alpha particle is essentially the same thing as a helium uh, nucleus. Uh, the nucleus of a helium atom includes two protons and two neutrons. That's an alpha particle, two protons and two neutrons. An alpha particle has good ionization power, but it also doesn't have a lot of penetrative power. It can't go through matter very easily. It's a massive particle in the grand scheme of things uh, and moves more slowly than other types of radiation. So an alpha particle is too weak to pass through a thin sheet of paper. It can only go through a few centimeters of air before it loses energy and can't move anymore. So while americerium-241 is radioactive, it's considered relatively safe in small amounts and if kept in isolation. You wouldn't want to come into direct contact with the stuff, and you definitely wouldn't want to inhale or ingest any americerium or get it in an open wound because it is carcinogenic, but it would have to get past barriers. It, it's not even strong enough to get through the skin, but it is strong enough if you were to ingest it or breathe in some dust, it could potentially uh, cause cancer. It could certainly increase your risk of developing cancer. So there is a danger to it. So your typical smoke detector actually has some radioactive material in it to create the ions that flow between two charged plates. The ions behave just as the ones did with Jaeger's high-voltage device. It's the same sort of stuff. It's charged particles. So smoke particles will still interact with them just as they would with Jaeger's invention with the high-voltage uh, grid. And they will still bind and cause a, a drop in current. And that's what triggers the circuit that powers the actual alarm. Now, it would be nearly two decades between the invention of americerium 241 and its application as an ion generator in a smoke detector. The United States Atomic Energy Commission would grant a license in 1963 authorizing the use of americerium-241 in smoke detectors. And the thought was that the amount of radioactive material uh, would be so tiny that uh, it would not really stand to be a hazard. And it was just a very low risk. But there was a very real risk of fire and smoke. And so when you weighed it against each other and said the risk of fire is high and the risk of something happening because of this very tiny amount of radioactive material is low, it makes way more sense to err on the side of detecting fires. So two years later in 1965, a guy named Dwayne D. Persall introduced a battery-powered smoke detector. This eliminated the need for that high-voltage circuit. And Purcell came by this accidentally. A lot of inventions really end up being created as a consequence of some other unrelated effort. So in 1963, that same year where the Atomic Energy Commission granted the license, Purcell had been working on some tough problems with his employees. Not problems with his employees, but with his employees, they were working on tough problems. Purcell was in a rough spot. So he had taken out a second mortgage on his house to create a company called Purcell Company and a spinoff company called Satratol, uh, or Satatrol rather, Satatrol Co Corporation in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I, I find that name incredibly difficult to say properly. In fact, I'm sure I'm saying it incorrectly. But anyway, the company's main business was selling heating and air distribution equipment for commercial buildings. 
So sort of like an HVAC company for big, big, big buildings. But the product his engineers were working on was what he called a static neutralizer. The idea was he was going to create an ion generator, and the idea was that these ions would neutralize static electricity buildup on equipment. And that's something that could be a real issue for industrial operations and clean rooms and stuff. So you need to have a way to neutralize static buildup or else you could have a discharge that could ruin tons of work. However, his team had encountered a problem. They saw that their ion generator was getting clogged up pretty quickly. The ions were attracting particles like dust and stuff. And as it was attracting dust, it was starting to make the entire device as a whole less effective. An engineer named Lyman Blackwell was running tests to see what could be done to keep the ion generation going. While testing the system, they noticed that the ion meter they were using to monitor performance would occasionally fluctuate. And one of the technicians running the equipment was a smoker. He was chain-smoking during the whole testing process. Eventually, they figured out that the meter was detecting fluctuations in the ion flow whenever smoke was getting pulled in through the fan on the generator and inserted into the ion stream. So essentially, they were making the same discovery that Jaeger had made decades earlier. But the big difference was that Persol's ion generator didn't require that high voltage to run because it was depending on that small amount of americerium 241 So he had the bright idea to take this unexpected result and turn it into an actual product. Two years later, he had the first battery-operated ionization-based smoke detector. He called it the SmokeGuard 700. But it wasn't quite ready for the home market yet because government regulations had not yet caught up to the technology. We're going to get into that as well because, as it turns out, it's not enough just to make tech that works. You have to make tech that works within the boundaries of laws and regulations. Meanwhile, a pair of inventors named Donald Steele and Robert Emmerich came up with an alternative method for detecting smoke with a, with a device. And this approach wouldn't use ionized particles at all. So there's no need to create any sort of ionization chamber. Instead, Steele and Emmerich created a smoke detector that relied upon light and photo detectors. So photo detectors, those are, that's light sensors, right? It's a sensor that detects light. There are two basic categories of light sensors. Uh, the first type are sometimes called photovoltaics. These are devices that emit electrons when they're exposed to light. So solar panels are a type of photovoltaic cells. Uh, they generate electricity when exposed to light. The other type of light sensor would be the photoresistor or photoconductor. These sensors have electrical properties that change if they are actually exposed to light. So, for example, a photoresistor has a relatively high electrical resistance when it's in the dark. So that material resists the flow of electricity going through it. However, as the material is exposed to light, the electrical resistance decreases and electricity can pass through it more readily. So if you place one of these devices in a circuit and you have a voltage detector also attached to that circuit, the detector will pick up changes in voltage as light hits the sensor. Now, you could try and build a smoke detector that works by having a light shining on a photosensor of some sort that's at least partially open to the air outside of the detector. And if something like smoke were to enter that pathway, 
the direct you know detector's vents and it somehow gets in between the light and the sensor, then you would have smoke obscuring or blocking some of that light. And if it were enough, then the alarm would go off. But that actually wouldn't be a very sensitive smoke detector. It wouldn't work unless the smoke was thick enough to really cause an issue. It's actually pretty tricky for a sensor to detect dips in light intensity. And by the time it would, the smoke might be thick enough to already be a major threat to people's safety. But there's a clever workaround to this. So instead of an alarm that goes off when a light no longer is shining on it, design a system where the alarm goes off if the sensor detects light. Even a small amount of light can create enough of a signal for it to send a message to start the alarm. So in this version, you've got a light that's shining down a pathway. So imagine a, a chamber, you got a light at one end, and uh, it's open so that air can come into the chamber. At a 90-degree angle, like a perpendicular angle to this light, and tucked away just a bit back, you have a little alcove where there's a sensor. So under normal conditions, the light is going through the chamber, but the sensor is tucked in at a, a right angle, so it's not picking up any light. The sensor stays in the dark. However, if smoke enters the chamber that the light is passing through, some of that light hits the smoke and starts to scatter. And this is the same sort of effect you would see if you were driving a car on a really foggy day. It's why you're not supposed to use the high beams on your headlights when you're in the fog. The light will hit the fog and scatter, and it's more likely to make it harder for you to see rather than easier. Well, in the smoke detector, some of that scattered light hits the sensor, which then activates a signal to the alarm. And that approach allows for far more sensitivity in a smoke detector. It can go off much faster than one that would re require the smoke to block the light. So a dark sensor picking up on light is just more reliable than a lit-up sensor trying to detect a dip in brightness. However, it's also not foolproof because vapor or dust could cause false alarms. Now, during all this innovation, changes were starting to happen on regulatory levels around the world. And when we come back, I'll talk more about how that played out in the United States. But first, let's take another quick break. All right, so now we've got the basic technology of smoke detectors understood. Let's talk about regulations. See, if you're going to produce and market something that's meant to protect lives, it's often the case that a government agency or two will take notice and they want to make sure that the thing you're making does what you claim it does. It, if lives literally hang in the balance, it's important. So this is the same basic underlying philosophy we see in agencies that monitor stuff like food processing and pharmaceutical development and production. The era I'm talking about uh, in the late 1960s in the United States was a particularly tumultuous time. You had the civil rights movement, you had America's involvement in Vietnam, and other really politically charged events playing out in the U.S. And these were sparks, pun intended, that ignited civil unrest across the entire country. And in turn, that was testing the limits of police forces and fire prevention and fire uh, uh, extinguishing services. So this prompted the U.S. Congress to re-examine policies around safety to better protect citizens. 
One thing to come out of this was the Fire Research and Safety Act, which was signed into law by then-President Lyndon Johnson. The president was citing some figures that suggested as many as 12,000 Americans had died in fires in 1966. Uh, Later estimates adjusted that number down significantly to like 8,000, but that's still way too many people. The act called for the creation of a 20-person panel to study the challenges and make recommendations for new safety standards that could be carried out at the federal level and require any building in the U.S. to follow certain processes to make sure that they were safe for people. And it took a few years for all of this to actually coalesce into a report. I mean, it was a a big task. And we also happen to know that things in the U.S. government don't go super fast. But in 1973, the panel released a report. The report was titled America Burning, which is pretty sobering all on its own. And America was leading the way in industrial nations when it came to per capita deaths and property loss due to fire. So the the argument they were making was that America is this incredibly advanced country. Why the heck are we losing so much to fire? We should be doing better than that. And 80% of the deaths were occurring in people's homes. The report also contained pictures of Purcell's smoke guard detector. He had come to overcome challenges to make his detectors practical and safe. Now, his original design did not have a battery. Instead, it was to be hardwired into the electrical system of a building. Uh, It didn't require 220 volts like the earlier smoke detectors out of Switzerland did, but it still was an expensive proposition. And it made it an unlikely candidate for home adoption because every unit would set someone back about $1,000 at the time, which would be a lot more than that today. So his team was able to create a version that would operate on battery power, which was already an engineering triumph, but they needed to figure out how to make this a reliable one or to convince people that it was reliable. Because batteries, as we all know, eventually exhaust themselves. The chemical reactions inside a battery are what produces electrons. And over time, you get to a point where there's been enough of the chemical reaction going on that you don't have the active ingredients necessary to sustain that that supply of electricity anymore, and not at the proper voltage anyway. And we're talking about something as critical as a smoke detector. That's a real problem. So his team solved this issue by creating circuits that would send a chirping alarm to the smoke detector if it detected a drop in voltage across the primary circuit of the smoke detector. So the chirp wouldn't require very much energy of itself, and it would be repeated until the voltage across the circuit returned to the proper level. In other words, until the battery was replaced. In addition, Purcell included a small card in the box for the Smoke Guard 700, and customers were meant to take the card and then fill out little forms on the card with their own information, including their address and the date that they installed their smoke detector. And Purcell's company would actually mail out an annual reminder to its customers saying, hey, it's time for you to replace the battery in your smoke detector in order to keep it operational. Purcell worked closely with safety officials and organizations, both to improve his smoke detectors and make them more useful, and also to help shape policy so that these detectors would be recognized as effective and a good option to help curb the problem of fatalities due to fire disasters. 
And the work paid off, both for Purcell and for people in general. He was able to convince officials that a battery-powered smoke detector was effective if it had the ability to alert occupants of a dying battery. Uh, The government actually would mandate that the chirping alarm sound should last at least seven consecutive days in an effort to alert homeowners to change out a battery. And this was specifically in case someone might be out of town when the battery starts to give out. They wanted it to last long enough so that you would have time to get back and find out, oh gosh, I need to switch out the batteries on my smoke detector. The government also had to balance out the cost of installing fire prevention systems in homes, including in newly constructed homes. Initially, plans called for both smoke detectors and rise of heat detectors. However, after numerous studies, the government concluded that rise of heat detectors weren't really practical if you were looking at trying to save lives. They just they just weren't good enough to do that, and they were really expensive, and that smoke detectors were much better for the purpose of preventing fatalities. And so that meant that they got rid of the rise of heat uh, detector requirement, and that helped bring the cost down of implementing fire protection systems in homes, and that in turn increased the likelihood that people would actually follow the rules and adopt smoke detectors. The regulations paved the way for Purcell to manufacture, market, and sell his smoke detectors to the American public, who could be reassured that the devices would actually provide a valuable and potentially life-saving service. He scaled up his company to meet demand before eventually selling it off in 1977. And from everything I've read about him, it sounds like he was motivated not only by an entrepreneurial spirit, although he certainly had that, but also a genuine desire to make his community and the world a better place if he could. And I think that's pretty cool. Since the introduction of the optical and the ionization chamber-based smoke detectors, We've seen some innovations, but the basic principles all remain the same. There are smoke detectors that incorporate both types of methodologies, meaning there are smoke detectors that have independent systems to detect the presence of smoke. And we've seen some incorporate other types of tech, such as network connectivity in the form of products like the Nest Protect smoke detector. And those smoke detectors add a little more functionality to the basic kind. They work on basically the same principle, but they have some more features. For example, they can send information across a local area network wirelessly, and then that network can send an alert to you on an app on a smartphone. And that could be valuable if, for example, you're away from your home when an alarm goes off. They give you a notification. You can perhaps... uh, either call home or if no one's home, you might even call a fire department to go and check on your home to make sure that everything is all right. And most homes have multiple smoke detectors. In fact, you're supposed to have one outside of every bedroom, for example, as well as maybe one in the kitchen. Uh, My own home has six of the darn things. And it can be an issue of figuring out which detector is going off. And that can be of vital importance. So with connected detectors, then you get a notification saying uh, detector number three is going off. And you know that number three happens to be uh, outside the guest room. So you would be able to very quickly figure out what's going on as opposed to trying to determine which of your numerous alarms is going off. It also means that if a battery is running out and a, a smoke detector is chirping or maybe a battery was just a bad battery and starts to chirp, you can more quickly track down which detector is making the chirping noise. This really applies to folks like me because I live in a townhouse that has 
a few floors. And the center of the townhouse is essentially like a chimney. There are stairs that go from the bottom floor and the stairwell is open all the way to the top of the townhouse. So it's like an echo chamber inside my house, which means when something like a smoke detector starts to chirp, I can't easily identify whether it's on the floor I'm on, the floor above me, or the floor below me. And I have six smoke detectors. If it's time to replace the batteries, that's one thing. But if it's just that a battery is going bad early, then I have to figure out which of those detectors is making the problem. And exacerbating this issue for me is the fact that I have a cute little doggy named Tybalt, and the chirping smoke detector noise causes him intense distress. Like, he starts to shake with fear. So... I get really upset when one of my smoke detectors starts to uh, chirp prematurely. There's no smoke or anything. It's just giving me a chirp alarm. Uh, But that's a me problem. One other thing that a lot of smoke detectors can do these days is they can also perform as carbon monoxide detectors. So carbon monoxide is an odorless and colorless gas, so human beings can't easily detect it. And it's also toxic. It's a byproduct from burning carbon-based fuels like gasoline, heating oil, or natural gas. And in confined spaces, it can be really dangerous stuff. So like a garage, for example. And while we humans can't really detect carbon monoxide with our own senses, there are a lot of other ways to see if the stuff is around. So carbon monoxide detectors can work using one of a few different methods. Upon detection, they basically do the same thing as a smoke detector. They send a signal to sound an alarm. But the way they detect the carbon monoxide can be a little different. So there are three basic approaches to this. Uh, And one, you might have what are called biomimetic sensors. These sensors mimic, thus the name, some sort of biological function, such as uh, hemoglobin, which interacts with carbon monoxide. So these sensors have a gel inside of them, and that gel can absorb carbon monoxide. As the gel does absorb carbon monoxide, the gel changes color. You have a separate sensor that's monitoring the color of the gel, and if the gel changes, then the sensor picks up on that change and sends a signal to the alarm. Uh, These sensors can actually be reset. The gel will return to its original color once it uh, it, it gets rid of that carbon monoxide, but it has to be set in an environment that's free of carbon monoxide for several hours in order to reset. The next type is the metal oxide semiconductor sensor. This has components that have a certain level of electrical resistance, very much like the optical smoke detectors I talked about earlier. So these components react with carbon monoxide in a way that lowers the material's electrical resistance. And so meters are monitoring a voltage across a circuit. And if it detects this change in voltage, then uh, it will send a signal to the alarm. And the third type of sensor that you could find in a carbon monoxide detector is an electrochemical sensor. These sensors also detect changes in electrical current in the presence of carbon monoxide, but they have electrodes that are inside a chemical solution. So they're actually engulfed in a chemical solution around these electrodes. And the chemicals in the solution react very, very quickly in the presence of carbon monoxide. And that changes the electrical uh, qualities of the, the solution, which means that you are able to detect a change in the circuit very, very quickly. In fact, this stuff is 
used in professional settings. Uh, it's a very sensitive kind of alarm. Today, there are a lot of smoke detectors that double as carbon monoxide detectors with separate components monitoring the environment. And that's how smoke detectors work. Uh, it's a fascinating journey, letting us learn a lot about physics, including nuclear physics. And we will be talking more about nuclear physics in our next episode. We'll talk about radiation and Geiger counters and uh, the discoveries that were made that really taught us all about radiation. And a lot of those discoveries came at a significant human cost. But uh, that's an episode for our next tech stuff. This particular episode is now concluded. So if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me on social media. We are at Facebook and we are at Twitter with the handle TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.